invite you to be seated, to turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges. It's been a few weeks since I've preached in the evening, but tonight we will finally finish our series through the book of Judges, and I will cover the last two chapters, chapters 20 and 21. Uh, it's a lot to read in one sitting, so I will summarize uh, various parts of chapter 20 through the sermon, but what you need to get from chapter 20 to understand chapter 21, which I'll read, is that all of Israel has gathered in response to the crime that was committed against the Levite and his concubine in Gibeah of the tribe of Benjamin. And so the 11 other tribes gather to determine what to do. They determine they are going to destroy Gibeah, but the tribe of Benjamin will not give up uh, the men of Gibeah to them. So 11 tribes go to war against the one tribe of Benjamin. Israel has much larger numbers, but on the first two days of battle, the Israelites actually lose. And it's not until day three that they finally defeat Benjamin, almost entirely wiping out the tribe. There are only 600 men of Benjamin left because they defeat their army, and then they go through the towns of Benjamin, and they wipe out the rest of the Benjamites. And so that's where we are as we come to chapter 21. Benjamin is literally down to 600 men. But before we hear God's word, let us call upon our Lord and ask for his help. Father, yet again, as we come to your word, we come to a passage that is hard to hear, perhaps hard to understand, and so we pray that you would give us grace to understand uh, what you are speaking to us still through these chapters. We pray that once again, we would see our need for not only a savior, but for a king to overrule our sinful hearts. We pray that you would do all of this by your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So hear now the word of the Lord to you this evening from Judges chapter 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin their brother and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. 
For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. Then the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but they were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem and south of Labona. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty." And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. In those days, there was no king in Israel. This is the author's explanation for the wicked, almost incomprehensible events that took place in the days of the judges. Rampant idolatry, heinous sexual immorality, widespread insecurity, an insatiable thirst to discover new realms of depravity. You would think those would be descriptors of the Canaanites whom the Lord had sent Israel into the land to punish for their wickedness. But if you have been around the last several months as I've preached through Judges, you know that is actually a description of God's covenant people who have by the end of this book become thoroughly Canaanized. We heard the crescendo of this canonization back in chapter 19, 
when a Levite and his concubine spent the night in the Israelite town of Gibeah. And that night, the men of Gibeah surrounded the house they were staying in, and they demanded to have the Levite so they could perform sexual perversions. Instead, the Levite and his host thrust out the concubine outside where she was tortured and murdered. An Israelite town, we heard, had become no better than Sodom, the epitome of wickedness in the days of Abraham, that city which God had burned with heavenly fire in his just wrath, so it would be wiped out forever. And we may wonder, how could this be? How could Israel, God's covenant people, have sunk to such depths of lawlessness? Well, we know it is because they rejected the lawgiver. The most disturbing aspect of Judges, as we hear it today, is to recognize this is a word to the church, not to those outside the church. This is what can happen to God's people when they no longer listen to their God. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And how many days do we wake up, we have our desires, our feelings, doesn't matter what anyone else says to us, does not matter what we read in God's word, we think, I'm going to get what I want, and it's right to me, and therefore it is right. That's the summary of this period in Israel's history. Israel was living like a kingless kingdom because she had rejected her glorious God and king. His protection, his provision, his wisdom, and his righteousness. Because when you reject the law, you become lawless. When you reject the only good, you become wicked. When you reject the king, you devolve into moral and social chaos. And so we are fools if we believe that freedom and safety, goodness and grace Pleasure and peace are found outside of any kind of external rule. One of the, the themes, not only of Judges, but of the whole Bible is, we desperately need a king. When we try to rule ourselves, it does not go well. And so when we come to this last verse in Judges, we ought to be begging God for mercy to give us a king. A king who will protect us, direct us, and restore us. Because sin not only stains us, sin seeks to rule us. It is filth. That must be washed away, but it is also a tyrant who must be overthrown. Brothers and sisters, we need a king. And that's my argument tonight as we close this book. Looking at the final two chapters, I'll try to show you why we need a king. And then I will conclude with the hope of the king that God has graciously 
given to us. So why do we need a king? Well, number one, we need a king to protect the kingdom. We've seen Israel's insecurity throughout the book. As Israel forsakes the God who is her mighty fortress, her rock and refuge, fleeing the shadow of his omnipotent wings to take cover in the shadows of man-made idols, Israel finds herself oppressed by nation after nation after nation. Because that's what idolatry is like. Idolatry is like hiding from the heat of the sun by finding the shade of a blade of grass instead of the shade of a giant oak. And that's what Israel keeps doing. We need a king because a king protects his kingdom. This is one of the great gifts of submitting to godly rule. It means we have another who is stronger and wiser than us who will watch over us. For we are weak, we are small, and we need protection. Who among us here would claim to be invulnerable? Who among us can guard himself from every kind of danger? Don't you feel that insecurity every day? Your money can be stolen. Your house can be broken into. Sickness, accidents, murderers can take your life. The strongest, richest, and wisest of us cannot secure their own lives. To be kingless is to be vulnerable and helpless. Israel could not defeat her enemies. Only God could give the victory. And the same is true for us. But what we realize as we come to the end of Judges is that we not only need a king to protect us from external threats, we need a king to protect us from internal threats. This is the horror of the last five chapters of Judges. Israel wasn't in danger from external armies. Israel was constantly in danger from other Israelites. The Levite would not spend the night in Jabus, a, a town of pagan Canaanites, but he is no safer in Gibeah, a tribe, a, a town in Benjamin. Israel was always insecure, and that insecurity came from within as well as from without. We need a king, therefore, who can protect us from ourselves. One who can protect us from the deceitfulness of our own hearts. And this is one of the gifts of the church, especially of church government. Again, as Americans, the champions of individualism and independence, we don't really like the concept of government at any level, including the church. Can you imagine if we didn't have any kind of leadership? Can you imagine if God saved us and then he just left us to ourselves without others to pray for us, to teach us, to watch over us, and to exhort us? We understand that salvation now does not mean perfection now. We still deal with sin. We still deceive ourselves. We are still easily deceived by others. And so we still need help. We still need protection from our own sinful blindness. And this is one of the reasons God has given us the church. 
Now, we need to be clear that Jesus Christ is the only head, the only king, the only ruler of his church. Pastors, elders, deacons, congregants who tithe the most, none of them ascend to the throne of God. Yet God gave us elders to exercise Christ's rule in the church by the authority of Christ's word. They exercise this authority only as they themselves submit to the authority of God's word. So if church leaders forsake the word, they forsake their authority. But as they faithfully teach and apply the word, they are acting on behalf of Jesus Christ. Or you might say, Jesus is exercising his kingly rule through them, and this is good because sin is deceptive and sin is subtle. Israel did not just jump from faithfulness one day to horrific gang rape the next day. It happened over time as they slowly forgot God's words and his ways, as they first dabbled in idolatry before totally immersing themselves in it. So church discipline first involves regularly teaching God's word, helping us remember what God has said and done. Remember what we read at the beginning of Judges? Soon there was a generation who had forgotten their God. They had forgotten what he had said. They had forgotten what he had done because no one was telling them anymore. This is for our personal protection. We need others in our lives to speak God's word, to apply God's word, and yes, sometimes to convict and correct in light of God's word. But this isn't just for our personal protection. It is for the protection of the entire church. Because the church, we are told, is the family of Christ. We are one body. And when one member becomes diseased, the whole body is at risk. You notice this unity in chapter 20. Three times the author says in verses 1, 8, and 11 of chapter 20 that Israel gathered and acted as one man. When the Levite sends the severed body of his concubine to the tribes, all the tribes, minus Benjamin, gather together to decide what to do. As I summarized before, they decide we have to destroy Gibeah. Why? Because it says in chapter 20, verse 13, they needed to purge evil from Israel. This was a spiritual problem. The Israelites recognize that if the sin of Gibeah is left unchecked, it will spread. Because sin is like cancer. Cancerous cells multiply by nature. And so if not killed or cut out, the cells grow and often spread to other parts of the body. Israel was covenantally one man. And so the cancer of Gibeah had to be removed from the body of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin, however, would not give up their brothers in Gibeah. 
Instead, they were determined to protect them, which meant Israel had to go to war with the entire tribe. Yet Jesus tells us if your right hand causes you to sin, you cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, you gouge it out. Of course, we're not to literally do that, but it means we take a radical posture against our own sin. But Benjamin said, no, I'm not going to cut off my hand. I'm not going to gouge out my eye. This is helpful for understanding church discipline. Because church discipline has at least three aims. It's aimed at upholding the honor of Christ's name, because when we just let sin go, it it besmirches the name of Christ. It is aimed at the restoration of the sinner. Because we know if we just let them keep going their own way, they will go to their own destruction. And so it's an attempt to pull them back. And it is aimed at the protection of the rest of the body. And it's this third aim that I'm emphasizing now. Sin unchecked in the church will spread in the church. Jesus warns against this reality when he speaks to the church of Thyatira in Revelation. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You hear what Jesus is saying? He's not saying, hey, guys, you're being too hard on Jezebel. He's saying, why are you tolerating this woman's teaching and practice? Because you're letting her go. She is taking my servants away from me. When Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for not dealing with a man guilty of gross sexual immorality, he says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He goes on to say that it's the church's responsibility to judge those inside the church, not those outside. And he concludes, like we hear from judges, purge the evil person from among you. Of course, this is the most extreme version of church discipline. Jesus and Paul are calling for what we call now excommunication. This is when you officially declare that someone who has been claiming to be a Christian, a member of your church, you say, as best we can tell, they're not actually a believer. They're not walking with the Lord in faith and repentance. And so we no longer treat them like a Christian. Now, in our denomination, there's actually only one sin you can be excommunicated for. It's the sin of contumacy, which is just a fancy word for stubborn unrepentance. See, there's, there's not actually one particular sin that you're automatically disqualified. But when we refuse to repent of our sin and to just continue going our own way, that is when the church has to say, you're not one of us. 
We say that for your good so that hopefully you will wake up to what you are doing. And we say this for the sake and protection of the rest of the church. See, that's what Jesus says of, of Jezebel. I gave her time to repent. This isn't, you sinned, we cut you off. He says, but she refused. No matter how great the sin, we can always be restored when we repent to our Lord. But if we refuse, then what's happening is essentially we are cutting ourselves off from Christ. See, excommunication is, in one sense, just acknowledging what the person is already doing. It's like with Benjamin. In chapter 20, the author keeps saying that all Israel has gathered. But Benjamin is clearly not there. And when the two sides fight, it keeps talking about Israel versus Benjamin. And we may be wondering, but I thought Benjamin was part of Israel. And I think that this is the author's way of saying, not when they refuse to fight against sin. If they side with sin, they are no longer a tribe of Israel. This is what happens when we protect our sin and refuse to repent. So we need a king who will protect us not only from external enemies. We need a king who will protect us from our own sin and stubborn heart. We need a king who knows what is right and wrong, who tells us what is right and wrong, and then who will actually promote what is right and punish what is wrong. Because if we let sin go, it will grow. And when that happens, we die. A kingless kingdom is a kingdom that is ever hastening towards its own destruction. Number two, we need a king to direct the kingdom. Again, if we're honest, we don't like people telling us what to do unless we finally get to the point where we acknowledge we, we don't actually know what to do. <laughs> Have you ever been in a situation where you honestly just think, I, I don't know what is right and I wish there was someone who would tell me? I have. And this is another gift of having a good king, because a good king is a wise king who gives us clear commands. Israel suffered in the days of the judges because, as we're repeatedly told, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And there can be two problems with that. One, again, we, we just don't actually know what's right. We we admit our own ignorance. But two, sometimes what we think is right is actually wrong. And Israel suffers from both problems. Now, there's a clear difference between chapters 20 and 21. If you go back and you read through chapter 20, you will see that the Israelites repeatedly seek the Lord's direction in chapter 20. And he gives them clear direction. But in chapter 21, they don't inquire of the Lord, and so they, they recognize a problem, but they just decide what they think is right to fix it. So three times in chapter 20, Israel inquires of the Lord. When Benjamin determines to fight Israel, the two armies are mustered. Israel has 400,000 soldiers. Benjamin has less than 27,000. Yet Israel wisely, for once, actually asked the Lord what to do. 
In chapter 20, verse 18, the people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel and inquired of God, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord says, Judah shall go first. Judah is going to lead you in this battle. Now, this echoes chapter 1, when Israel is beginning their campaign against the Canaanites. And they again ask, who should go first? And God says, the tribe of Judah goes first. So in both instances, God designates Judah needs to lead the way. The sad part here at the end of the book is it's not Israel going to war with the Canaanites. It's Israel going to war with one of their own. But even though Israel had superior numbers and clear direction from the Lord, they lose on day one. They lose 22,000 soldiers, and Benjamin barely loses a man. So they gather again before the Lord again, but this time they come weeping, and they ask, shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? The fact that they lost has now made them wondering, wait, are, are we doing the right thing? Should we actually be fighting against our own people? But God says, go up against them. But day two goes nearly as bad as day one, and Israel loses another 18,000 men. They've already lost more men than Benjamin has in their entire army. And now Israel's really distressed. So they go again to Bethel, and they weep. But this time they also fast, and they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. They go to Bethel because for some reason that's where the Ark of the Covenant is at this time with the high priest. And the Ark of the Covenant signified God's presence. You needed the high priest to be your mediator to go to God. And they ask again, should we fight Benjamin? And this time God says, go up for tomorrow. I will give them into your hand. So the Lord not only tells them what to do, but he tells them what will happen. And this time the Israelites have a plan. They've been losing because Benjamin has been fighting from the protection of Gibeah. And Benjamin has 700 soldiers who are left-handed and really skilled with a sling. And they've just been picking off Israel all day. So this time Israel attacks Benjamin and they decide when it starts to look like we're losing again, we're going to run away so that all of the Benjamites will chase us. Then we're going to have another army waiting to go in and destroy Benjamin. And when we see the smoke rising from the fire, then we're going to turn around and now we're fighting Benjamin in the open and we've got a lot more people and so we're going to destroy them and that's exactly what happens and Benjamin is left with 600 soldiers who go and hide at the rock of Ramon. So the Israelites followed God's clear direction and they eventually won. But as I read through this text I, I had to ask myself why did they lose the first two days? They asked the Lord what they were supposed to do. They did what they were supposed to do. And they lost, not once, but twice. And it could be for multiple reasons. The author doesn't tell us. It could be that God was chastising Israel as well as Benjamin, making it clear, listen, Gibeah is not the only problem in Israel. <laughs> You guys are as sinful as they are. 
And you notice when you read through the chapter that their failures on days one and two actually draw them into deeper faithfulness and obedience to the Lord. Before any fighting, they ask the Lord what to do. Uh, they don't ask if they should fight. They just say who should lead the way, and he, he tells them. But after they lose that first day, they come weeping. Now they start to get the seriousness of what's really happening. And this time they ask, wait, is this actually what we're supposed to be doing? And when they lose again, they come before the Lord still weeping, but now they are fasting and actually offering sacrifices according to the Mosaic Covenant. God, at least to some degree, I think, was drawing them into deeper covenant faithfulness. He was exposing their own sin and leading them into repentance. Because even when God is leading us to deal with the sin in others, our highest priority is always our own sin. God will give us the victory, but he will do so in a way that always draws us closer to himself into deeper faithfulness. So the end result is important, but the path is equally important. It can be at times that delayed success is one of God's ways of lovingly disciplining us. But it may also just be the mystery of God's ways. When things go wrong, we often think, as Israel did, well, we must have done something wrong. But that's not always the case. God's not always chastising us for some particular sin when things don't go the way that we expect. Sometimes things go wrong even when we are doing what is right. Israel obeyed, but the outcome wasn't what they expected. We need to remember, though, that obedience is not dependent on outcomes. We obey God's clear commands regardless of what happens when we obey. See, the outcome is not our responsibility. Obedience is our responsibility. We may rest assured of the, the final outcome, which is victory in Christ, but we may suffer setbacks and defeats along the way. I've said before, for those of you who've been around Good Shepherd, one of my favorite characters in the Chronicles of Narnia is Puddleglum. He's the marsh wiggle in the silver chair. And if you've read the silver chair and you know Puddleglum, you probably know why I like him because I am Puddleglum. In the silver chair, when Puddleglum and the two kids who were sent to find the lost prince come before a, a man who's bound in the silver chair, and is begging them to let him free. At first, they won't let him free. The man before this had warned them, if, if you let me out of here, I will turn into a serpent and I will probably kill you. So, kind of like the Israelites who took an oath before they went into battle, Puddleglum and the kids take an oath, no matter what this guy says, we're not going to let him out of the chair. But then the man in the chair asks them to release him, and he asks them in the name of Aslan. And if you've read the book, you know that Aslan is the one who sent them to find the lost prince, and he gave them four signs to obey so that they would know they were on the right path. 
And the fourth and final sign was that someone would ask them to do something in Aslan's name. And when that happened, they needed to do it. And so now they find themselves in a precarious situation. And the young girl, Jill, cries out, if only we knew, if only knew we knew what we should do here. And Puddleglum says, I think we do know. The boy then asks, do you mean you think everything will come right if we do untie him? And Puddleglum responds, I don't know about that. You see, Aslan didn't tell Pole what would happen. He only told her what to do. That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I shouldn't wonder, but that doesn't let us off following the sign. We've got to learn to be a puddle glove. Not that we see the bad side of every situation, but he's right. Jesus hasn't told us everything that will happen to us if we obey him, but that doesn't allow us to stop obeying him. Our obedience is not dependent on the outcomes. Our job is to obey and leave the outcomes to him. And if things are not going well, then we pray for faith like Esther to say, if I perish, I perish. Or faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stand before Nebuchadnezzar and they say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We need a king who will direct us in the way we should go, even if he doesn't tell us everything that will happen. The Israelites suffered defeats, but they didn't lack direction. The Lord kept telling them what they needed to do. Third, we need a king to restore the kingdom. At the end of chapter 20, Benjamin is nearly wiped out. But that's the key. Benjamin is nearly wiped out. Not completely. Chapter 21, which I read for you, is another strange chapter, but the idea is that Benjamin is not annihilated. In fact, by the end of the chapter, the means for their restoration is in place. The 600 Benjamites now have 600 women to help them repopulate the tribe. However, the means of getting those wives only serves to demonstrate Israel has not really fixed the problem. When Israel defeats Benjamin, they actually go throughout the land and they wipe out all the Benjamites. So the 600 soldiers are literally the only ones left. And when they're asking, oh, what do we do? There's no other wives for, for Benjamin. It's like, oh, how could we have foreseen this when we literally killed all of their wives? So this means now that when these 600 men die, Benjamin is done. Israel soon realizes this, and they regret that a tribe will be lost forever. And so they want to find a way to save Benjamin. The problem is, is that before the battle, they promised one another, we will not give them any of our daughters to be their wives. So what do they do? 
Well, they first ask, was there anyone who didn't come to fight with us? And the answer is, well, the people from Jabesh Gilead didn't come to fight. This means they didn't take the oath, and we also took another oath that we'd kill anybody who didn't come. So they go out and they wipe out the people of Jabesh Gilead, except for 400 virgins that they now give to the first 400 Benjamites. But they're still 200 women short. So next they decide, well, there's a, a festival of the Lord at Shiloh every year, and there's a lot of women who like to dance there. So we'll tell the Benjamites, you go and you take the last 200 women that you need. And this won't be a problem because we didn't take, take them. Benjamin took them. And if they, the fathers and brothers complain, we'll just assure them you're not breaking your oath because you didn't give your daughters to them. They were taken. So problem solved. Now I mentioned that there's a big difference between chapters 20 and 21. In chapter 20, Israel has questions and they ask the Lord. In chapter 21, Israel has questions and they just ask themselves. And this is the best they come up with. I think the absence of inquiring of the Lord combined with the concluding verse, yet again reminding us there's no king, everyone's just doing what's right in their own eyes, leads us to, I think, conclude, while, while God certainly purposed to save Benjamin, he did not approve of this way. But even though we recognize that the means of restoration were sinful, we must still see the miracle at the end of the book of Judges. If you've been with me through these 21 chapters, the thing that should surprise you the most when we get to the end of Judges is that there is still an Israel. There is still an Israel with 12 tribes. They have done everything they could think of to destroy themselves, and they're still there. Why? Pure grace. It's what we've seen over and over again. God is faithful to his covenant, even when we repeatedly break it. The Israelites had become spiritual Canaanites, yet God did not do to them what he did to the Canaanites. Instead, he saved them. Over and over again. We saw that Gibeah had become a new Sodom. God punished them, but he didn't do what he did to Sodom. There were still 600 Benjamites remaining. Christian, this is our hope. No matter how great our sin is, no matter how many times we disobey, God remains faithful. We sang it this morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And he remains faithful, ultimately by giving us the king we have always needed and which we will never deserve. Many scholars have argued that Judges was written in least, at least in part to support and promote David's rule. It's a, a very pro-David book. And I think there's some merit to that argument. The conclusion of Judges is 
guys, we, we need a king. But you also see we don't need just any king. Israel's first king will end up rejecting the Lord and being rejected by the Lord. His name was Saul, and you may remember that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin from the town of Gibeah. They should have known better. Israel would need a better king. A king from the tribe of Judah, whom God had said over and over again, Judah's going to lead you. They needed the man God was choosing, the man after God's own heart. And what was God doing during the days of Judges, besides just preserving a people bent on their own destruction? Well, you don't read about it in Judges, but you read about it in the next book in the Bible, a short little book called Ruth, where a woman named Ruth in Judah, in Bethlehem, has a son who's named Obed, who fathers a man named Jesse, who fathers a man named David. God was providing the king that Israel needed. And yet, David was not the ultimate king that we need. He was a type of the king we need. For God promised David that one day he would have a son who would rule forever. And the prophet Isaiah spoke about this Davidic son and king. And in light of everything we've read in Judges, this prophecy should give us more joy and hope than we could imagine. For the prophet Isaiah said, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And friends, it is my great honor to tell you that king has come. We're going to celebrate his birth for the next month. He is the king who is called Mighty God, the one who's actually able to protect us. He is the king who is called Wonderful Counselor, always knowing how to direct us. And he is the king who is Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, willing and able to restore us. He rules with righteousness and justice. He is called Jesus. The book of Judges is one long cry for a king. And Jesus is the answer to that cry. He is the king we need. He is God's covenant faithfulness in the midst of our unfaithfulness. And so as we conclude this book, 
The only proper response is to bow in worship before our King and thank God for His unending grace, which can reach the furthest depths that our depravity has gone, and it can raise us to dwell in the merciful realm of our righteous King. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the, the good news of the gospel is that we have a Savior who can wash us from our sin. But it is equally that we have a King who can conquer our sin. And so, Father, we give you praise. We are no better than the Israelites we have read about in Judges. Apart from your grace, we would do what is right in our own eyes, and it would be as horrific. So we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you that you have not given us independence, but you have given us a king to rule over us. Give us grace each and every day to humbly bow before him and to obey regardless of the outcomes, knowing that the final outcome is eternal joy and life and peace forevermore. Amen.